Revelation chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 1 through 14. And the message is entitled, Worship Jesus. Many years ago, Thomas K. Beecher once substituted for his famous brother, Henry Ward Beecher. And many curious, uh, curious seekers were there. And um, they had come to hear the renowned Henry Beecher speak. And therefore, when Thomas Beecher appeared in the pulpit instead of his brother... Some started getting up and heading towards the door, sensing that they um, were disappointed. Um, being the substitute for his brother, Thomas Beecher raised his hand and silenced uh, uh, the crowd and said, quote, All those who came here this morning to worship Henry Ward Beecher may withdraw from the church, and all who came to worship Jesus may remain. Pastors are servants of the master, not greater than the master. The only one to be worshipped is Jesus Christ. Today we have too much pastor worship. And men and women are following a man. And that's wrong. It's idolatrous. We're not to worship the man. We're not to serve the man. We're not to worship the building or anything else. We're to worship Jesus Christ Alone, ladies and gentlemen. Very, very important. As you know, a number of prophets saw God's heavenly glory, like Isaiah, Ezekiel, even Paul saw, he was caught up to the third heaven, he saw and heard things not lawful to be uttered. John, the um, apostle here, the beloved, also saw a vision of heaven as he was in the island of Patmos, as we've seen, uh, for the word of God and the testimony of his name. Um, this is the first of a number of visions in the third major division of the book that uh, goes from chapter 4 to chapter 22 as we've gone over the different divisions. This first group of visions um, runs from chapter 4 to chapter 8, verse 1, comprising of three visions introduced by the phrase in chapter 119 and 41. These things which will take place after these, the things of the church that have been finalized, chapter 2 and 3. We're going to see chapter 4 and 5, the church is in heaven. Chapter 6, the tribulation begins. The four, chapter 4 and chapter 5 comprise the first vision, uh, which falls into two parts. In chapter 4, John sees the awesomeness of God's throne and the Father is worshipped as creator. That's chapter 4. The word thrones appears 12 times there. In chapter 5, John sees the awesomeness of the God's Son who is worshipped as redeemer. And the word throne there appears five times. So very clearly, the Father's in four, the Son's in five. And we'll point this out. So let's focus on chapter 5 this morning where all the activity is directed to the Lamb for all he has done and accomplished to redeem the race of fallen Adam. Chapter 5 gives to us the vision of the scroll in heaven that must be opened by the rightful Redeemer and is marked by a threefold movement. Let me... Read here chapter 5, 1 through 14. 
He says, And I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. When I saw the strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice who was worthy to open the scroll and to lose the seals, and no one in heaven or in earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to uh, look in it, so I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to lose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And then he came, and he took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne, Now, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp of golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open the seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of your every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard a voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 times thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power, riches, and wisdom, and strength, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that is in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor, glory, power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. Chapter 5 gives to us the vision of the scroll here. In heaven, that must be opened by the rightful Redeemer, marked by the threefold movement. First, we have the vision of the scroll and God in verse 1 through 4. Second comes the vision of the scroll and the Lamb, 5 through 7. And then thirdly, the vision of the scroll and the worship of the Lamb, 8 through 14. The vision of the scroll and God comes first. Notice in verse 1. The Apostle John saw God on his throne, sitting on his throne, a position that represents power and authority, a restfulness, endowment completely. This majestic glory of God's throne is magnified by the angelic presence. Notice that in the 24 elders that we see in chapter 4, verse 1 through 7, they're before him there. The worship of God by the four living creatures declaring holiness and the 24 elders casting their crowns at the feet of his throne being worthy as creator is also an affirmation there in chapter 4, verse 8 through 11. Remember, chapter 4 comes before chapter 5. Chapter 4 is the foundation. Then the fifth one comes. Now, he who sat on the throne is God the Father. Uh, Though it is not stated... It's implied by virtue of being distinct from the Lamb in our chapter here, verse 5 and 6, and also previously. There's a distinction made between the Father and the Son through the both chapters. You can see that. Daniel 7, 9, this is the identity of the Ancient of Days by Daniel, if you remember. Uh, listen to him. He says, I watched 
till thrones were put in place and the ancient of days was seated. His garments were white as snow and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels as burning fire. So way back there, Daniel in the Old Testament, he saw the Father and the Son distinct from each other and he sees the same scenario here. Now notice he saw the scroll in the right hand of the Father. Um, this again marks the place of privilege. Majestic power to rule and delegated authority. Everything comes from the throne of God. He gives the permission, not the permission. But we have to be careful that we never conclude that God permits the evil or the author of the evil. But he allows this evil world to run its course. Okay? So be careful you don't make God the author of evil or sin. Um, he had in his right hand seven stars out of which... Uh, of his mouth went for the sharp two-edged sword, we're told. His countenance was like the sun shining in its strength in chapter 1, verse 16. Now, notice the scroll had writings inside and, uh, and on the back or the front and the back. The tense is perfect participle, and they tell us that it indicates no place uh, or, or, um, or on either side. So, in other words, all of it. If you remember the Old Testament, uh, when Moses went up to the mountain, it was written on the front and the back also, not just on the front. And so this is the same idea. Uh, in our study to Ezekiel, if you remember in chapter 2, 9 through 10, the background is there. Ezekiel says, now when I looked, there was a hand stretched out to me and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me. And there was writing on the inside and the outside, the writing on it were the lamentations, the mournings. Or woes. So in that scroll, it's contained the judgments that were going to be coming. And it's very clear there with Ezekiel, both written on the inside and the outside. Now there are two, there are those who dispute the writing on both sides. We'll leave that to people who argue. Who cares? Okay? But it's very clear here what it's saying. Now, some see this as two documents. One open and the other one sealed till the time of redemption after the example of Jeremiah in chapter 32, verse 6 to 15. Um, when he was in jail and he was going to redeem some property, okay? Um, so we looked at that when we were there. Now notice the scroll was set, has seven seals to be opened by the rightful heir able to meet the conditions of the particulars revealed in these seven seals. So in other words, certain conditions were put on there, and once you open the first seal, if you can meet all the conditions, then you can move on to the second seal, and so on and so forth, Okay? These were the requirements. Now, a Roman will requires seven seals and seven witnesses. The number seven, as you know, is key in the book of Revelation, symbolic of completeness. There are seven spirits of God, seven churches, seven lampstands, seven stars, seven angels, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, seven thunders, seven heads, seven diadems, seven plagues, seven mountains, seven kings. So seven is very, very important and key to the book. Now, John, notice, does not tell us what the scroll is, nor do we have any other passages that would indicate the meaning here of the book. Okay? Um, there are many interpretations, but the most common that are probable are probably three, and I'll give you those. Uh, first, that the scroll contains the very judgments poured out from chapter 6 to the end. Second, that it is a book of life that is mentioned in the book of Revelation many, many times. Thirdly, that the scroll is the title deed to the earth, and it's usually tied with the redemption of Ruth 
by Boaz. And Pastor Chuck certainly taught this and made that parallel. Okay. Um, the interesting thing is that this is not stated in the context. It is the title deed to the earth. Um, but it's taken from the Old Testament of Ruth and Boaz. And, um, but we know that the new interprets the old. Now, there are parallels that we can put forward, and, I, and, I, and I'm, I'm not quick to use the word type so much because a type, a true type, is something that is very clear in the Old Testament to be fulfilled in the New. Now, we're not always, we would never know what was a type unless it's pointed out in the New Testament. You follow what I'm saying? If, 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 if Paul and Peter had not shown us the fulfillment of the Psalms and different things, we would never have found that as a type in the Old Testament. So a true type is something that is declared in the Old Testament, but it's revealed in the New, pointing back in fulfillment of it. This is the type, this is the anti-type, the fulfillment. Okay? I don't see that in terms of a title deed. I don't see it in Genesis, I don't see it anywhere else. Now, it could be, but I, I don't see it uh, completely. Now, Jesus interprets for us the content of the book that he was going to show John. And it is this. It's, it's re- recorded in chapter 1, verse 19 and 4.1. It is this. The things that must occur after these things. These are the things contained in this scroll. Jesus tells us this. The complete and final judgment of the day of the Lord, the establishment of the kingdom by the rightful heir on the throne, who is Jesus the Messiah, even unto the eternal state, from chapter 6 to verse 22. So what's in this scroll is what follows from chapter 6 to 22. This is the content and context of the scroll that takes place here. Jesus said this, listen. And we just finished Luke, so it should be fresh in your mind. Luke 18, 7 through 8. Jesus said, And shall God not avenge his own elect, who cry out day and night to him, though he bear long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? The answer is no. During the tribulation period, people are not going to believe that God's going to avenge all the evil. Jesus said, Yes, I am. We're going to see John weeping next. Because he, would, he didn't see one who would be able to bring forth the judgments. Now notice verse 2 through 4. The apostle John heard the inquiry of the one to open the scroll. The one he saw is described as a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice. We don't know who he is. Some believe it's Gabriel. It could be. Gabriel has a big mouth. He's always sharing things. But um, uh, we don't know. The proclamation is in the form of a question notice. Who is worthy to open the scroll and to lose its seals? The word worthy has the idea of proper weight corresponding to the book. Equal balances. It's stated in verse 2, 4, 9, and 12. In fact, the Old Testament word for glory, kabod, has the idea of weight in contrast to the shallowness and lightweightness of the false gods compared to God. The answer is only he who can meet all the requirements. He who can loose or unfasten the seals. 
one only, as we're going to see Jesus Christ. Now, the law of redemption in the Old Testament gave the right for the goel, the kingsman redeemer, if you remember, if you were studying the Old Testament. This included redemption for, uh, to redeem one who sold themselves to servitude. They would serve for six years, the seven they would be released, but they could be redeemed within that time by a family member. The redemption of property and land is also one of the benefits of a goel. And Ruth, again, uh, was redeemed by Boaz, a, a, a fulfillment of that of the property. And also Hananel, the cousin of Jeremiah, who sold the property to him in Jeremiah 32. And that whole aspect, they blamed Jeremiah of being a traitor, and they put him in prison when he was going to go out to Anathoth for the redemption. Now, so we can see how the scroll can be seen as a title deed to the earth, as God gave Adam complete authority. But then the assumption is made that Adam forfeited the earth to Satan by the fall. When, in fact, Adam forfeited the authority, not the earth. The earth belongs to God. Nowhere in Scripture do I ever read that the earth belongs to Satan. Read the Psalms. The Psalms come after the fall. The earth always belongs to God. It's authority. The Scripture that is used to verify this often is when Satan said to Jesus... That if he would bow down to worship him there in the temptation in the wilderness, that he would give him all the authority of the kingdoms unto him in Luke 4. Right? So we assume earth. But first of all, examine that passage, and I brought that out when we studied it. Everything Satan is saying, there's a lie. Half truth. Why would we take this one and believe what he's saying is true? And the argument is, well, Jesus didn't dispute it, so it must be true. So you're telling me that if I tell you that I'm a billionaire, and you know I'm not, and you don't reply to me, that your silence makes my statement true? It's ridiculous. Nowhere in Scripture do I find the earth belongs to Satan. Now, he's called the God of this world, the Prince of the Power of the Air. But he has authority, dominion in this fallen age. But the earth doesn't belong to him. God, the creator, it belongs to him. The earth didn't belong to Adam. He created the earth for Adam and Eve to enjoy. We are his children. Does the earth belong to us? No, it's his. But everything is his belongs to us, but indirectly. So... Just something, a little different perspective. You might look at it. <laughs> I'm not going to damn you. You're not talking about salvation. But I just don't find that the earth belongs to Satan. Also, the payment for redemption was not made to Satan as so many teachers are teaching today. The payment of redemption was made to the Father by the Son. Not to Satan. Now, look at verse 3 and 4. The Apostle John saw the horrible dilemma of no one found worthy to open or read or to look at, or, or to look at the scroll. In verse 3, no one was found within the complete scope of all in existence. Everything is included here. In heaven, no angel. In whatever rank or file they belong to. In, in earth, no one living 
on, under the earth, no fallen angel or demon in hell. No one, anywhere. The response of John is in verse 4. Notice, he wept convulsively, seeing the hopelessness of this scenario. There's tension in heaven. Not from God's perspective, not from the angels, from John. No one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or look into it to establish the kingdom. A picture is of utter hopelessness for everyone. No one's around. You remember um, Isaiah, when King Uzziah died, Isaiah 6, 1 through 5, he says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, each one six wings, with two they covered their face, two they covered their feet, the two they flew. And one cried out to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Yahweh of hosts, the captain of the armies of heaven, that the whole earth is full of the glory, of his glory. And the post of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips, where my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Yahweh of hosts, the captain of the armies of heaven. He's never lost a fight. He's never been impressed on whatever size army. <laughs> he is the ultimate authority and power. God, in the beginning of creation, created Adam and Eve, as you know, with the capacity to be sinless and to dwell in the presence of God's glory in, in chapter uh, 1 and 2, there as he created the earth and then them in chapter 2. They were created in his image and after his likeness. That means that they had the capacity of choice, being moral agents, to please God and to worship him perfectly. Without any impediments. God had the best in mind for Adam and Eve. He gave them the authority over the earth, over the animal kingdom, everything. Everything was perfect. They worshiped everything else. The only thing they were held back for us from the tree of good and evil. Now they had no sin nature. So they could obey, they could fulfill, they could enjoy. Okay? We can only know that intellectually. We'll never know it experientially, okay? Even as Christians. Now, the serpent being more crafty than all the other animals, as you know, became the instrument of Satan to tempt Eve to eat of the tree. In chapter 3 of Genesis. Now, think about this. Eve was the first to eat. She was the first to experience the horror of being separated from God. The guilt and shame of her fallenness. And yet, in spite of that, she went to persuade, coerce, drag her husband into the very horrible condition. Have you ever thought about that? He isn't fallen. She is. Wow, sin nature is strong, isn't it? Destructive, selfish, doesn't think of others. 
In fact, I got to bring you down to my level. That way I don't feel so bad. As long as you're not fallen and you fill in the blank, then I, then you think you're better. And then I feel that you're better, so I want to bring you down to my level, right? That's the nature. They both ate and their eyes were open, as you know, and they saw that they were naked and they tried to cover themselves with fig leaves and people are still trying to cover their guilt and sin with fig leaves. It doesn't work. You fill in the blank fig leaves, works, you know, philosophy, education, whatever it may be. God sought Adam and Eve, as you know, in the garden in chapter 3. Where are you, Adam? It didn't mean the location. But are you aware of where you are now in your fallen state from me? They both knew. That's why they went and hid themselves. He was now in a sinful state, separated from God, both Adam and Eve. And prior to the fall, Adam had the capacity to not sin. Now Adam and Eve only had the capacity to sin. Nothing could be undone. Nothing could be redone. The fall was in effect. The history of man tells the rest of the story. Violence, murder, selfishness, wars followed Adam's descendants. Chapter 4 down to 6 of Genesis, God had to destroy the world. But a more recent evidence is our world today. The only way you can explain this world is if you believe the fall back in Genesis. If not, then you have to create some kind of thing like evolution <laughs> or whatever else to explain everything around us. Because the premise of man is man is good. Well, if man is good, why all the evil? If your premise is wrong, your conclusion is going to be wrong. But if your premise is right, then the conclusion is going to be right. Listen, he says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent and thought of the heart of man was only evil continually. Genesis 6, 5, confirming Jeremiah 17, 9, The heart of man is deceitful, desperately wicked above all things. Only God knows it. Nothing has changed. Paul the Apostle describes the condition of man after the fall, perfectly. We just finished it in, in Ephesians about three weeks ago. Listen carefully. He says, Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope without God and the world. Wow. One of the darkest descriptions of man. That's where you were. That's where I was. Without Christ. And yet we thought we were okay. Others knew they weren't okay. But they saw their condition as not okay, but they didn't see themselves not okay with God. Too often we judge whether we're okay or not by our condition, how we feel, how much we have, where we're going. It's to be between me and God. That's the proper assessment. And so this is the vision of the scroll in heaven. No one is no one is there. No one can be seen. Hopelessness. But again, it's from John's perspective. Notice secondly comes a movement of the vision of the scroll and the Lamb. Verse 5 through 7. In verse 5, the Apostle John was told there, were, there was a solution to the hopeless dilemma. The elder is a contrasting hope from John's hopelessness by the word but. 
He must be one of the 24 elders before the throne. He will once again speak and give the interpretation later in chapter 7, verse 13. Now notice the elder comforts John by saying, do not weep. The verb being placed first makes it emphatic. You as a father or a mother, when your child is freaked out, they listen to me. Johnny, emphatic. As if to say, stop your convulsive weeping. Look at the throne. God's on it. And he's not biting his nails. Wow. Now I bite my nails sometimes. You're all freaked out. The elder proclaimed the identity of the one who was worthy. Notice that. But the lion of the tribe of Judah, the one who all the prophets spoke about, Shiloh, Genesis 49, 9 through 10, the scepter of Messiah. The lion represents the divine kingship of the Messiah here. The root of David, quoted from Isaiah uh, 11.10, it says, There shall come from a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of its roots. The dual prophecy given to David in 2 Samuel 7.12-13 of Solomon, the short-term fulfillment on the throne, long-term the Messiah, the genealogy through David and Matthew and in Luke, it's there. Notice the elder proclaims, he has prevailed to open the scroll and to lose its seven seals. Unto us a son is born, a son is given. Isaiah 9, 6-7, Revelation twenty two sixteen. the root of David. The word prevail there, Nikao, is in the era's historical past fact. He did conquer as the God-man. Proclaim in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman, virgin birth. Isaiah 7.14, behold, a virgin shall bear a son. She call his name Emmanuel. Galatians 4.4, 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth the son made of a woman under the law. Wow. He's the one that conquered. Nikoa. You get the word Nike. Shoes, running, victory, crossing the line. <laughs> That's the root. The same word is used for to over, for the overcomers eight times as we saw in chapter 2 and 3. The message to the seven churches. Now notice his, um, his prevailing represents the requirement needed to open the scroll. Now verse 6, John the apostle here saw the solution of hope for the dilemma. John saw the one sacrificed for the sins of man. John looked and behold, don't miss that little word. In other words, hopelessness, and all of a sudden, boom, solution. There it is. In the midst of the throne, as in the four living creatures, in the midst of the elders, that uh, either were sitting or prostrated. One stood all of a sudden, a lamb, as though it had been slain. The word is used for Jesus standing at the door and knocking in 320 of Revelation. The Lamb is now the focus of the heavenly scene in the midst of the throne. Everyone is beholding Him. Him alone. Nobody's eyes are on anything, anyone but Him. I've done a lot of weddings in 40 years. And everybody's been to the auditorium. They're looking around. They're talking. And then it's not, you know, but then when the bride starts walking up, everybody gets their eyes off the baboon and it's on the princess. That's it. 
The four living creatures, the elders, all have their eyes on him. The apostle John cannot take his eyes off of him. Verse 6, 8, 12, 13. Wow. The title is only found two other times in the Old Testament. Isaiah 53, 7 and Jeremiah eleven nineteen. Two times in the Gospels. John 1, 29 and 36. Two times in Acts. Acts 8.32, once in the epistles, 1 Peter 1.19. Yet the title appears 28 times in the book of Revelation. It is the diminutive, literally, little lamb. This is the solution. This is the hope. (laughs) None other. Now the paradox is that the lamb is slain, is usually laying down. The lamb is standing alive and ready to act in full authority. And here's the kicker. Who's ever been intimidated by a lamb? (laughs) A lion, yes. But he's both a lamb and a lion. The tense is the past perfect. The fact of being slain, being dead, but now alive. The propitiation for our sins is not ours alone, but the whole world. 1 John 2, 2. If God sent his son to die for the whole world, then the whole world is propitiated. You get to choose where you spend eternity, not God. The payment has been paid. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. I have both the keys of Hades and death. Revelation 1.18. Notice the word slain. It means to slaughter, butcher, violently, found ten times, nine times in the book of Revelation. The only exception is 1 John 3.12 when it's used for Cain who slew Abel. Interesting. Think about it. The first sacrifices. How do you, how do you kill a lamb? A juggler. It's used for Cain slaying Abel. How do you kill his brother? Most likely the same way you kill a lamb. The only thing you knew, right? Wow. Isaiah and Zechariah tell us that his wounds are on his body. Isaiah 53, 7, Zechariah 13, 6. When he returns, he has a glorified body. He is the God-man, sit at the right hand of God right now. At the first sight of Jesus, it's very possible we'll see him in his wounds. Isaiah 53, 2 says, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He told Thomas, put your hand here. Look at my hands. The wounds. Notice John saw one who solely was vested with the authority to do what? To judge. That's what's going to be happening here. John saw the Lamb having seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth, we're told. Seven horns represent complete and perfect perfect power. Seven eyes represent perfect knowledge. All things, nothing escapes him. We have seen the seven burning lamps before his throne in Revelation 4, 5. Seven spirits of the sevenfold work of the Spirit that we saw, the Holy Spirit, in chapter 1, verse 4, indicating Isaiah 11, 2. Not seven Holy Spirit, but the sevenfold work of the Holy Spirit that are indicated there. These are in relationship to the righteous judgment to fall on a God-hating earth during the tribulation 
and great tribulation. Look at 7. The apostle saw the lamb executing the transaction from the father. The lamb came and approached the throne of the father. The long-awaited plan before the foundation of the world, the long-running reign of sin and rebellion was about to be brought under judgment. And he took the scroll out of the right hand of the father who sat on the throne. The submissive role of the son to the father for the plan of redemption had been accomplished. Never believe or think that the submission of Jesus marks inferiority. It marks effectiveness for the plan of God. Notice the leading role for judging man was now being put into effect. The one able to do that is the focus. The Greek conveys a dramatic action. This is a climactic scene. The entire goal. He is the one worthy to enact the judgments of God and the redemption of everything and to set up the kingdom. He taught his disciples to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as in heaven. Listen to Daniel, Daniel seven thirteen through 14. He saw the same thing. Daniel foresaw this day. I was watching in the night vision, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days. The Son of Man is Jesus. The Ancient of Days is the Father. And they brought him near before him. Then he, him, was given dominion and glory and kingdom, that all people, nations, and languages should serve him whose dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not be passed away in his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. Daniel was looking at the same thing we're seeing here, the very same audience that we're going to see. The Psalms tells us that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God until he makes his enemies a footstool, quoting Psalm 110, verse 1, which is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. The authority from throne is passed to the one and only mediator to finalize the long-awaited plan of salvation history. Jesus Christ, no one, no one else. You know, worship is a recognition of supreme worth, and one person put it this way, quote, Worship is not a text, but a context. It is not an isolated experience in life, but a series of life experiences. I hope that you break into worship spontaneously as you're in your car or around your house or wherever you may be. I hope that you realize how fortunate you and I are to be alive today and to know that we're saved by His grace and that we have access to Him. But here's the kicker. The most simplest and the most effective form of worship, are you ready for it? Is obedience. If my hands are up, but my heart's not bound, the hands aren't seen. And so it causes us to reflect and to examine ourselves all the time. That's good. That's good. There are many people that present themselves as being very loving and benevolent in today's politically correct society. They cannot believe or accept that a God who would punish man... Uh, for sins. 
They have shaped God in their own image, after their own likeness, corrupt, as Romans 1 says. When they knew God, they didn't want to glorify Him as God, but they changed the, the image of God. Four-footed beast, so on and so forth. There are others who cannot accept that Jesus is the only person that people must believe to get to heaven. The only one that can forgive their sins. As if that shakes heaven. (laughs) Let me give you three verses that I always give you, just to clear up the air about this. (laughs) Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. And that one statement that destroyed every philosophy, every ism, every religion that will promise you heaven. There is no other name given under heaven and earth whereby we must be saved, Acts 4.12. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2.5. The only way, the only name, the only mediator. To me, the gospel is very simple, very clear, very dogmatic, very narrow. You can fight against it. Doesn't matter. You'll lose. God can't lie. And these proclamations are out of love to redeem, to rescue, to forgive, to restore, not to condemn. He didn't come to the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. There are people who think they can um, work their way to heaven. You have Jehovah Witnesses who go from door to door, putting their time in. They could very well stand at a corner of an alley where nobody's there as long as they put their time. It's time to put in, right? You have Mormons getting in good shape with their bikes, doing their missionary work. And if they believe and are obedient to the book of uh, Mormons, then they'll have their own plan and repopulate it with all their uh, new wives and everything. Uh, where do we get this stuff? Or other people say, well, you know, I'm, I'm a good moral person. I call them good moral pagans. And they say, they say you know, I, I don't, I, I've never stolen. I've never um, committed adultery. And I've never, you know, and they'll name all kinds of different things. And some of them may be true, but not all of them. So in their statement, they're really liars. That's for sure. Um, but even though they haven't committed some of those things they've mentioned, there's others they have that they're not mentioning. See, we love to say, well, I've never done that, but why don't you tell me what you have done? What are you talking about? We're dogs. We're liars. We're not good. We're good for nothing. We are sinners at heart, ladies and gentlemen. We are bad to the bone. We want for the grace of God. You wouldn't want me to be your pastor. (laughs) All have turned aside. Listen to Romans 3.12. They have together become unprofitable. There is none that does good. No, not one. I used to work for Prano Marcus in the 60s and early 70s. And we would get credit on anything that you break or damage. Cans, goods, sodas, whatever. As long as you kept the label, the cap, you know, you get a return from the uh, manufacturer. The only thing you do not get credit for was produce because it's perishable. This is the word, unprofitable. 
perishable, not one good. <laughs> We're as perishable as produce. <laughs> Short life. God provided the only specific acceptable way for our sins. The sacrifice. It would be the seed of the woman born without the aid of a man that would crush the head, the authority of Satan in, Revel in Genesis 3.12, the seed of the woman. That one that Isaiah 7.14, Behold, a virgin shall bear a son, shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. John the Baptist told his disciples, Look, there's the Lamb of God, pointing to Jesus Christ, John 1.29. Wow, every Jew knew Lamb of God, blood, hands, cutting, Talmud, fellowship. Wow. School for 2,000 years in that. He would be the savior of the world, as he stated to the woman of Samaria. By the way, that title was given to Samaria, not in Jerusalem. John 4.24 or 4.42. <laughs> Amazing. He would become sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21. What an amazing, amazing work of love. He was and is worthy to redeem lost man. Who? Jesus. Only Jesus. This is the vision of the scroll of the Lamb. Now you understand why they're worshiping him? <laughs> I understand why we're to be worshiping him. Not a pastor. Not a church. Notice thirdly. The third movement comes in 8 through 14. The vision of the scroll and the worship of the Lamb. Verse 8 through 10, the lamb with the scroll is praised in a new song. The spontaneous worship of the lamb is immediate. Look at verse 8. The response to the lamb having taken the scroll was one of complete adoration. The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb in chapter 4, uh, verse 8 through 10. These elders are probably representatives of the church. Others believe their combination, Old and New Testament. I give you both. The focus of worship goes from the throne of the Father to the Lamb. Mark that well. Each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense. Much of this is recorded in Psalms 33, 2, 98, 5. You know, um, some of the Psalms use these instruments to praise God. They're, they're written for that. We get our word guitar from that. Um, representing, notice, the prayers of the saints here. The prayer marks petitions as those in chapter 6 under the fifth seal for vengeance, Revelation 6, 10, and 8, 3 through 4. You see, the tribulation saints, they're praying for vengeance. You and I are praying for redemption. We're praying for people to get saved, okay? But those of the tribulation, they're praying, Lord, when are you going to whack them? All right? You don't put the church in the tribulation. Okay? This is the model for the incense of altar in the Holy of Holies, as you know in the Old Testament. A picture of heaven. God told Moses, make sure you make it exactly after the pattern. book of Hebrews tells us why. Because there are things of heaven, right? Both places. Now, an angel will take a censer in the seventh seal of chapter 8, 34, and cast it into the earth as judgment. Look at verse 9. The worship of the Lamb was for His redemptive work. This is what's in the scroll here. Okay? The song is new in quality, not time. The climax is in the three hymns addressed to both the Father and the Son. Verse 9, 12, and 13. Now notice the first two are to the Lamb. 9 and 12. 
in the last is to both the Lamb and the Father. Verse 13. The theme is, you are worthy to take the scroll and open the seals. You were slain, a historical fact, as the Paschal Lamb, Exodus 12, 1 Corinthians 5, 1 Peter 1, 18-19, and many other passages. You have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Who can that be? Only the church. The word redeem. Agarazo, it means to buy in the marketplace. 1 Corinthians 6, 20, 7, 23, 2 Peter 2.1, and many other places. Agarazo is the marketplace. Jesus re- redeemed us, ex-agarazo, out of the marketplace. He's, he bought us out from sin. The token was his precious blood according to the law, Leviticus 17.11. I've given you the blood as an atonement for the altar. The life of the flesh is in the blood, an atonement for it. The identity is obvious. These can only identify one group of people. Who? The church. No one can sing that song except the church. They're even said there. The worship of the Lamb was for the transforming work of the redeemed. He made us a kingdom of priests to our God. He told us that in Revelation 1.6. He'll tell us that in 5.10 also. It goes back to the Old Testament, Exodus 19.6. Israel was called his peculiar treasure, right? Peter says, now we are that. Now don't confuse Israel with the church. That's called replacement theology. They make the church the new Israel. No. If you believe that, you get an F in the subject of Bible. The Old Testament wife, we're going to be studying Hosea pretty soon, the minor prophets is a wife that's been put away by divorce for adultery. The church is a virgin bride. If you don't know the difference, go talk to your mama, okay? Don't ever confuse them or make them one. One does not replace the other. God will redeem Israel again. Read the book of Revelation, Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, and many other passages. Now, we shall reign on the earth for a thousand years with Jesus. The earth will be redeemed. Romans 8, 21 through 23. The creation groans for the return of Christ. All this smog, all this pollution, whatever else. He redeems both us and the earth. Now notice verse 11 and 12. The lamb with the scroll is worshipped and praised by the myriad of angels. In verse 11, the electrifying multitude of angels break out all at once. John looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, a whole bunch, <laughs> billions. Listen to Daniel 7.10. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousands of thousands ministered to him. 10,000 times and thousands stood before him. The courts were seated and the books were opened. Daniel 7.10, same scene. Wow. The scene is unparalleled in Scripture regarding the unrestrained praise. Innumerable multitude is the idea. And this is the emphasis. The city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem of Hebrews 12.22. Can't wait for that day. 
Notice the eloquent worship is articulated. They declared the doxology with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain, the lamb of God. Three times it is stated he was slain in the chapter, verse 6, 9, and 12. This is the reason for being able to open the seal and execute judgment and finalize the kingdom. He's the worthy one. They praised him to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Lenski, the Greek scholar, points out the following. The first four are objective, power, riches, wisdom, and strength. The last three are subjective, honor, glory, and blessing. All ascribed to Jesus Christ in the New Testament, in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians, so on and so forth. All the Jesus Christ, him and him alone. Now notice in verse 13 and 14, the lamb with the scroll receives universal praise and worship. In 13, the acknowledged praise and worship of Jesus is depicted by oneness. Not the oneness of the world that's against him, but the oneness that he alone deserves. The oneness is all-encompassing acknowledgement here. Every creature which is in heaven, every creature on earth, every creature under the earth, every creature such as are in the sea and all that is in them. Why? He created everything. There's nothing that was made that is present that he did not make. The oneness is all-encompassing praise. John heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne, referring to God the Father as the creator in chapter 4. Blessing and honor and glory and power be to the Lamb forever and ever, referring to the Son, Jesus Christ, the Redeemer of man and the world, due to his faithfulness to God the Father. Revelation 7.10 tells us very clear. Notice the affirmation in verse 14 of the praise and worship of Jesus is confirmed by oneness again. Then the four living creatures said, Amen, so be it. Amen is found six times in the book of Revelation. 4, 9, 4, 10, 5, 14, 10, 6, 11, 15, 15, 7. Amen at the end means I affirm the truth of it. I go along with it. If you put it in the beginning of the sentence, then it means what I'm going to say is reliable and trustworthy. Pay attention. It depends where you put that word. It's the same word, but the placing of the grammar makes the difference of the, of the understanding. He's the exalted lamb. He is the one to inaugurate the new age of salvation history. Notice in the 24 elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. This is the most common word for the word worship in the New Testament, proskuneo. It means to kiss the hand or the ground. Once again, the idea of prostration, adoration, and worth. He is the only one. We serve anybody, but we bow down only to one person. <laughs> we bow to no one. We serve everybody. The word is used of God, Christ, man, demons, and idols. So the importance is the context, right? So the word can be used different for different things. Now John tells us repeatedly that the angels and elders around the throne fell on their faces and worshipped God. 4.10.7.11 What else can you do? Now if that's the scene in heaven, shouldn't that be down here? 
Absolutely. The worship of Jesus is the theme of heaven. When um, Queen Victoria was, had just ascended to the throne and um, she went as her custom of royalty was to hear the Messiah render, she had um, been instructed as to her conduct by those who knew and was told that she must not rise when others stood to sing the Hallelujah Chorus. Um, when the magnificent chorus was being sung and the singers were shouting, Hallelujah, 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 for the Lord God omnipotent reigns, she sat down with great difficulty, we are told. It seems as if she would rise in spite of the custom of kings and queens. But finally, when they came to that part of the chorus where with a loud proclamation was declared, that Jesus was king of kings, suddenly the young queen rose and stood and bowed her head as she would take her crown off of her head and cast it to his feet. Rightly so. All oh, that we never forget that regardless of who we are or what we possess or who we think we are or who other people tell us we are, that we always bow and worship to Jesus. Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Oh, may our praise and worship of Jesus ever be spontaneous and not orchestrated. I hate orchestrated worship. Where somebody up front, okay, now stand up, let's all raise our hand. Shut up. Play the music. You worship the Lord. Let the Lord deal with people's hearts. If it isn't spontaneous, if it isn't true from you, then it's, it's, it's worthless. Worship him for his work of redemption on my behalf, for his suffering on my behalf, for his love expressed in my life. Luke 2.13 says, The angels appeared to the shepherds and the heavenly hosts appeared praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest. Oh, that our praises and worship never become formal let alone entertaining as so much of that is in the church today. Much of worship is, is entertainment, and, it's, and they try to pass it off as worship. God help us. That God the Father and our angels be grieved at such a thing. That the world would say, look, they're like us. It seems that the church is always trying to compete with the world and be like the world. Why? The world, the church is worldly today. Look around. It's not a matter of thinking you're better. It's a matter of comparing the world to the church of Jesus Christ, the scriptures. Peter, John, and others gathered to pray for boldness and they worshiped God. Acts 4.23, the 31 said, Oh, that each of us may... When we hear the worship of God, whenever we gather Sunday evening, morning, or whenever, that we would affirm and confer the worthiness of worshiping Him. That even as before we even get here, we've already spent time worshiping the Lord on our way here. 
praying, Lord, what are you going to do? Lord, how are you going to use me? Lord, there's somebody there that you want me to speak to. There's something that you have for me. Lord, just bring my thoughts in captivity. That we prepare our hearts to come and not think it's like going to the show. You know, you do everything you want, then you get in the show. They all get You are the church of Jesus Christ. I am one of you. The building is just the building. It's not the church. If the theme of heaven is the worship of Jesus, shouldn't it be the theme of the church? Absolutely. The book of Revelation is all about worshiping Jesus in heaven and on earth. They continue the temple daily, one accord, praising God. Acts 2, 46-47. Once again, Paul says, Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In Philippians 2, 9-11. Right now it's by grace, by bowing your heart to Him, repenting of your sin, knowing that the wrath of God is upon you, but He loves you and He died for you. When He comes back, it's by force, for judgment. You and I get to choose whether we bow by our own willful acknowledgement of our sinfulness or whether we will bow because he returns and he judges us. But we make that choice. This is the vision of the scroll in the worship of the Lamb. The vision of the scroll in heaven that must be opened by the rightful Redeemer is marked by these three movements. The vision of the scroll and God. The vision of the scroll and the Lamb and the vision of the scroll and the worship of the Lamb. Wow. That group is you and I in heaven. No one else. No one can sing that song. Practice it. So you don't have to ask, are you guys have a music sheet up there? Lord, thank you for your grace, your love, your goodness. We love you. We thank you. We are so thankful for your grace and mercy, Lord. We thank you for your people. The privilege that we have to see you work in our lives and each other, Lord. Lord, I pray for anyone here who might not know you. You would speak to their hearts of your grace and love. They might call on your name. As you're praying... If you're here, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. You're the only one that can do that. No one can do it for you. You might be over the internet. If you believe that Jesus is God who became man and died for your sins, and you believe that you're a sinner and God's wrath is upon you, then you're agreeing with God. Then you can call upon him and he will save you. He will forgive you right now. It's called repentance. As you call upon him and ask him to forgive you of your sins, that he might save you right now. This is your prayer to him. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. Amen.